The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, I'm Josh Levine, Slate's national editor and the author of The Queen. This is Hang Up and Listen for the week of February 18th, 2020. On this week's show, we're going to talk about the fallout and the recriminations from the Houston Astros sign-stealing scandal. Everybody's mad. Jose Altuve has a collarbone tattoo. We'll also discuss the huge changes that are reshaping the WNBA and assess the best player in college basketball, Oregon's Sabrina Ionescu. And finally, we'll review the Netflix docuseries Cheer, a look at the triumphs and the rigors of competitive cheerleading. Joining me as always from Palo Alto, fresh off his triumphant live tour, Slate staff writer and the host of Slow Burn Season 3, Joel Anderson. Hey, Joel. Good morning. Yeah, I'm, I'm triumphant. I do feel triumphant. I survived. You did. You not only survived, you triumphed, which I guess is implied by triumphant. <laughs> yeah, right. I'm going to get into my thesaurus later in the show, but I'm just working one word at a time at the top. <laughs> Stefan is off this week, filling in for him in our DC studio. It's Lindsay Gibbs. Lindsay is one of the co-hosts of the Burn It All Down podcast, the proprietor of the Power Plays newsletter, on sexism in sports. Hello, Lindsay. Hi. Thanks for having me back. We're always happy to have you. And big news for the Power Plays a Cinematic Universe. This week, you are bringing the newsletter to the next level. It's time. It's time to flip the switch and pull out that subscription model. So announcing it in Tuesday's newsletter, which should be out shortly, and then next week starting the subscriptions, and then we'll go to some subscriber-only posts starting in uh, the first week of March. I am very excited and equally terrified. (laughs) So we love Power Plays, and we love your work, Lindsay, and people should support this work. It's nobody else is doing the kind of journalism you're doing about women in sports. So we're excited to support it and support you. And for people that hear this, that are hang up listeners should email Lindsay. Lindsay, you can give out your email address in a second, put hang up and listen or something of that nature in the subject line. And Lindsay is going to give away a free subscription to one of you guys. Nice. Yeah. So email me Lindsay at L-I-N-D-S-A-Y at powerplays.news, powerplays.news. So if you put hang up in the subject line, you will be entered, but only if you've already signed up on the free list. You have to be on the free list to get the the paid subscription. So make sure if you go to powerplays.news, once again, powerplays.news, that's where you can sign up for the free subscription. And even after we go paid, there will still be one newsletter per week that will be for everyone. So it won't be uh, a waste of your signups, I promise. It's, it's, uh, it's fun. It's been great. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. His karate lessons might not turn him into a black belt. Hi-ya! And even after band camp, he might not be the greatest musician. But with the 3% annual percentage yield you can earn on a PenFed premium online savings account, your goal of supporting his dreams... Thanks for everything, Mom and Dad. ...will always be worth it. 
Apply today at penfed.org slash savings. Federally insured by NCUA. $5 minimum to open account. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed. PenFed's got great rates for everyone. Last week, the Houston Astros launched spring training with a string of apologies. Owner Jim Crane and players Jose Altuve and Alex Bregman said they were sorry for the team's sign-stealing scheme, an operation that led to the suspensions and firings of GM Jeff Lunau and manager A.J. Hinch, but quite importantly, resulted in no penalties being imposed on Astros players past or present. Let's listen to Bregman's performance of contrition. I'm really sorry about the choices that were made by my team by the organization, and by me. I have learned from this, and I hope to regain the trust of baseball fans. I hope choices were made, enters the pantheon with mistakes were made. It's even more passive of a construction. (laughs) I love it. So the Astros peers in Major League Baseball uh, were not won over by that apology. Cody Bellinger kind of came out first and came out uh, hottest. Bellinger's L.A. Dodgers lost the World Series to the Astros in 2017. He told reporters that Houston stole the Dodgers World Series ring, that everyone in the big leagues lost respect for them. He also talked about the video going around of Altuve telling his teammates not to rip off his jersey when he hit a walk-off homer in the 2017 playoffs. That footage has led some to believe that Houston players were wearing buzzers under their shirts. Let's listen to Bellinger. I don't know what human hits a walk-off home run against Raldis Chapman to send your team to the World Series. And one has the thought to say, don't rip my jersey off, but two, go in the tunnel, change your shirt, and then come out and do your interview. Like that, that makes no sense to me. It makes zero sense to me. Because I know me, Gary Sanders said yesterday, you can rip my shirt off. My pants off. I set my team the World Series off for all this Chapman and the ninth inning at home. You can do, you know, I'm going crazy. All right. So if we do not see a pantless Bellinger, then we'll know that he is, he is a hypocrite. Carlos Correa of the Astros defended Altuve saying he didn't want to take his shirt off because he had a bad tattoo. I mean, this is this is where we're at, Joel. Um, and we must give credit to Stefan here because he predicted that this is how this was going to play out, that giving the players immunity to discuss this sign-stealing scheme openly was going to backfire on the commissioner. The explanation for why no players got suspended, this is what Rob Manfred says, and I think it's true, is that a memo was sent out explaining that if any team was caught stealing signs, then the manager and general manager would be held responsible, as they were, Lunau and a hinch got suspended and then fired. And reporting by Jeff Passan suggests that Astros management did not pass along the message in that memo to the players. And so the thinking is, if any Astros players got suspended, then there's no way it would hold up in a grievance. And so in that case, you would just be suspending players with the knowledge that it wouldn't hold up, but to send a signal. And so the question then is, is it worth it to do that just to send a signal, even if in actual fact, nobody would miss any playing time? I'm actually not sure what else the commissioner could have done just because of the players union and the suspensions probably wouldn't have held up. But Joel, you, thoughts? I just find this really hard to take seriously, to be honest. And a lot of that is because obviously I'm not out there playing, you know, my contract, my career, you know, my legacy, it wasn't on the line. So 
Um, I probably take a much a much less serious view about this. But the further you're away from winning the 2017 World Series, the funnier you think <laughs> yes. this. You know, I'm just like you guys are like really emotional about this, which is great. But you know, I read in the New York Times, one of the writers wrote, "We are supposed to be 100 sure that the games are played fairly." That is the very underpinning of sports, and that's a good line. But it also seems sort of absurd to me because. Sports, especially at that level, first and foremost, are about entertainment. Like, we do them and pay attention to them because they're supposed to be fun and they're good programming. And, like, all this moralizing about something that's not very important. So, I guess for me, the issue is, do you really want to stamp out all cheating in sports? Seriously? Like, is that is that where we're supposed to go from here? So, how where does gamesmanship end and cheating begin in baseball? Um, and do they really want to go that far? Do we really want to go down that far down the wormhole and figure out like all the different ways in which players and teams are trying to get advantages that are not legal, that are outside of the rules, and investigate every team in that way? Do they really want to be subject to that kind of scrutiny? Because that seems to be what they're asking for here. Well, the thing that's so fascinating here is that players compete against each other on the field and they compete hard in whatever sport it is. But off the field, there's usually more solidarity mm-hmm. than this. They're usually on the same team against <laughs> management. But they are on the same team, right? Because this is all a union. Like they're also hiding, the Astros are hiding behind the union, correct? Yeah. I mean, the union is kind of behind the fact that the Astros got immunity here. And yet the other players in the union don't seem very happy about this, Lindsay. No, because they feel like something was taken directly from them, which of course you can never know exactly where this went. I do want to say though, while you all are talking about the very serious implications of this, I really only want to talk about Altuve's shirt and like what really happened. I think this is the funniest sports scandal in the world. And as somebody who's not a huge baseball fan and isn't tied to it, I'm enjoying devouring every single second of this drama. Uh, Correa recently said that, you know, he gave both excuses. He said, first, he didn't want me to take his shirt off because his wife didn't want him to take his shirt off anymore when if you look at Altuve's Instagram it is full of shirtless photos (laughs) so he said it was that and the tattoo thing it was both so there were a lot of reasons here for him to keep his shirt on but I think what's been fascinating to me is finding out what an open secret this was within baseball, which once again, as someone who's not um, as clued clued into the day-to-day, that was surprising for me. There was a big piece in the Washington Post about how when the Nats um, were were playing them in the World Series, everyone kind of reached out to them. They got help from everywhere to talk to them about the ways that the, whether you want to call it gamesmanship, whether you want to call it cheating, the ways that the Astros were, you know, stealing signals and figuring out things. So the Nats actually went into this last World Series with kind of a plan to combat that, which I thought was just absolutely fascinating. Yeah. And players knew about it. Seemed like teams knew about it. And yet, how do we square that with the fact that this is going on for years and only now are we hearing the rage from, it's not just guys like uh, you know, Bellinger, who was specifically harmed by it. Mike Trout, the mm-hmm. face of baseball to the extent there is one, saying that the punishment was weak. You Darvish, who I guess was actually particularly harmed well, by this because yeah, he was on the right. Dodgers, yeah. saying the Astros should be stripped of their title. Does that actually not make sense, Joel? If everybody knew about it, why is everybody just 
mad all of a sudden. When we previously discussed this on this podcast, I mean, that was the thing that sort of struck with me because, you know, Dusty Baker came out this weekend and said he wanted to get the MLB involved so that there's no premeditated retaliation. You know, basically the pictures on you know, throwing fastballs at his players' heads all year. Yeah, I mean, Dusty Baker, new manager, had nothing to do with any of this, and he's been called on to kind of steer the ship now. Yeah, right. And my thing is, like, we know that about baseball, that, like, they have a way of handling these sort of issues within the field of play. Like, that is, you know, with throwing the ball at somebody's head is giving them some chin music, right? Yeah. So we're to believe that these highly competitive dudes knew or suspected that cheating was going on and they just let it happen. You know, I, and, and they never threw at anybody. They never, I mean, I don't, I guess I just kind of don't understand why now, if you, if you suspected it, you were mad about it before everything that was at stake then is going to be at stake in the future. But it, you know, you had an opportunity with the, a divisional series, a championship series, a world series on the line. And you were just hoping that the refs were going to step in or that history was going to justify that somebody was going to be, Hey man, you guys got cheated out of a world series. I don't I don't understand like why now they're upset when they had an opportunity to, you know, show their discontent in that moment, throw fastballs at people, complain about it, that sort of stuff. I don't know. What was the holdup then? Why why are they so mad today as opposed to when they had an opportunity to actually do something about it when there were stakes involved? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really great question. I have heard that there was some reporting to the MLB and the MLB investigations kind of didn't go anywhere throughout the years. But it also, it's one of those things that the skeptic in me makes me wonder, is this because there's so much more of this going on behind the scenes than anyone knows, right? Mm -hmm. But if there was so much more of this going on behind the scenes, then you would think that players would have an incentive to shut up about it. The thing that's been so interesting is that the Astros are being treated by their peers as miscreants and outliers. And like, if there are unwritten rules, and we know baseball loves its unwritten rules <laughs> about how far you can and should go with sign stealing, it just seems to be universal at this point, at least in these kind of spring training press conferences that the Astros with, you know, looking at the video signals during the game, using the trash can to <laughs> signal, uh, you know, whether an off-speed pitch is coming. Um, maybe wearing buzzers under their shirts. Like everybody seems to think that if it's if it's everywhere, then at least this version of it isn't everywhere. Yeah, it seems like because of how big this has gotten so quickly and how now we know how intricate it was, that it's just given everyone permission to kind of just continue to throw these players under the bus. But you do wonder how much of this is going to come back and how much of this is systemic, not just within the Astros, but within baseball at large. Can I also just say that maybe I'm wrong. Stefan was right. I'll admit Stefan was right at first. But don't you just think that in two months, nobody's going to care about this? I fail to believe that this is going to be a continuing news story. The MLB has no interest in dragging this story out. And any retaliation that is done, you would think would be done, you know, by spring or the with, you know, the first few games of the season. And then the games have to get started. There's a whole new pennant chase going on. Why do we think that like all this complaining is happening now? Because the news has come out now. But I just don't believe that we have the aptitude or the, you know, the ability to pay attention, you know, the, the attention span to just carry on the story forever. I just think 
let players blow off their steam now and the MLB will just, you know, all right, well, you're, you're mad about it and just keep on moving. You know? In Joel's future world, the XFL does not exist. <laughs> it's true. We didn't, we, we're not talking about it this week, are we? We're not talking about week two of the XFL, right? <laughs> we're, not talking, we're not talking about week two of the XFL. But I think the analogy with the Patriots is always instructive. And people mm. are still talking about Spygate 15 years later. And you also never heard this kind of concentrated anger directed toward the Patriots from other players. I don't feel like ever from players on every team. And it's also just the fact that this has coincided with the start of spring training. It's like Mm -hmm. reporters are all like fanning out to these sites in Florida and Arizona, and they're kicking off the season by like reacquainting themselves with players. And it's all anybody wants to talk about. I think that that there will be other things to talk about in the next couple of months, Joel, I agree with that, that this will fade a little bit. But I have a hard time thinking that the Astros' role in this, the fact that the 2017 World Series is tainted, I don't think that that's going to be forgotten by anyone. I don't either. But also, I think the reason this keeps coming up is because their PR, they keep having PR disaster after PR disaster after PR disaster. Like if they were handling this with any sort of like contrition and adult behavior, I think this would be different. But just, you know, this week we had Jim Crane say, oh, this didn't really impact the games itself. Nobody should be held responsible. Oh, wait, it did impact the games. You know what I mean? Just like within 60 seconds of each other, you have. The, you know, Bregman sounded robotic, like he was reading. Yeah. You know, like, but they're not constrained. They're not. That's a thing. So they're well. The th- play, the players that have left the using my same construction about the the further you're away from Houston, if you're an Astros player, like the former players are extremely contrite and honest about what took place, which actually makes the current Astros players look worse because these guys who were their teammates are performing. I think, in the way that their peers and that fans want to hear. Yeah, I agree. But what do you think they're going to do about it? So we've got George Springer. I don't believe I don't believe MLB players when they say that they're really upset about this. I think they're they're performing. Oh, wow. I'm I'm becoming a performative outrage person. Oh, my God. I need to really reassess where I'm coming up from this. <laughs> but I really do think that, yes, the people that feel like they were denied a World Series or a pennant are upset and they're lashing out right now because yes, you probably would be upset if you thought that a team got the best of you and it it worked the angles on you to win the championship, even though we know that some of them suspected it was happening at the time, right? And for some reason, they didn't protest or vocalize these concerns at that time, right? But um, I, I just, I feel like we saw what happened in the steroid scandal. There are too many guys that emerged from that scandal clean at this point. Now, there are people that have not gotten to the Hall of Fame, but there are people that are firmly ensconced within baseball culture again, even up to working on MLB teams, people, guys that were, you know, very much at the center of the steroid scandal. So I just, I think that right now they're hot about it. Maybe they should be, but I just don't see that anger sustaining itself. The Astros did just have a pitcher banned for a whole season for oh, yeah. Francis Martez. Oh, <laughs> I, yeah, I bet that's he's right. probably happy that this happened during the midst of the sign stealing scandal. It's like nobody cares about doping right now. So people <laughs> don't want even know that you got suspended for a year. And hey, for the Astros, nobody's mad at them for all their domestic violence mess ups now. So this yes, is, you dude. know, taking away the <laughs> this is taking away the focus there. Lindsay, this is a great point. That's when people first started getting <laughs> mad at them, right? Like that's where all that first got started, correct? And it just kind of metastasized yeah. in this other thing, right? 
Right. Yeah. So you mentioned whether people are going to stay mad at them. So one instance in which peers do stay mad is the players that crossed the picket line during the player strike. There were guys that got called scabs for the rest of their careers. And so I think you're right that this is not get to that level, Joel. Like, I think if a guy from the Astros switches to another team now, he'll like say all the right things and the teammates will, you know, get over it. I don't think somebody's going to get ostracized. So I think that is probably a good indicator of where the scandal sits in terms of how it's perceived by players in the game. I do think it'll be a punchline over <laughs> uh, infinity. Like, you know, like you say Spygate, like this is going to be a punchline and this is going to be dragged into conversations, whether it's out of pure anger. I don't know. And, you know, if we're talking about how this is going to end or how this is going to fade, remember that Major League Baseball hasn't announced its punishments for the Red Sox, who <laughs> are caught up in a, a similar, if not as pervasive and all-encompassing sign-stealing scandal. So this is going to be back in the news, and people are going to be comparing their penalties, and there's going to be a whole other round of conversation about that. I'm from Houston. The championship counts. I'm sorry. (laughs) Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. A month ago, the WNBA and its Players Association signed a new collective bargaining agreement that, among other things, allows the biggest stars in women's basketball to make more money. This month, those stars started inking new deals and changing teams. Angel McCautry, Christy Tolliver, Dewana Bonner, Skylar, Diggin Smith, all all stars, all going to be wearing new uniforms. Lindsay, let's start with the why. What is the deal? What's the explanation for all of this player movement? Well, for one, you have an increase in salary cap. It went from, I think, $1 million to about $1.3 million. So that's a pretty significant increase. It gives teams a little bit more to go with. Second, you have these bigger contracts available before the max players could get was around $117,000. Now the max is $215,000. That's a big difference in money that I think are making the elite players trying to seek out teams that can give them that max contract because, of course, not everyone's going to be able to get that. Um, Another important thing is that as part of this negotiation of this new CBA, the core designation that teams are allowed to give out, which is basically the WNBA's version of the franchise tag in the NFL that gives the team where the player is under contract with has, you know, gets to hold on to them. So that has decreased. They took away a year for that. I think it went from four to three. And going forward, it's going to go down even less to two. So it gives players more availability for movement, the big elite stars, whereas they used to be tied to their teams for upwards of 10 years if they were in a really elite player, you know, played their entire rookie contract and then were cored four times. You know, you're talking about upwards of a decade. So those things really combined to make what has been the most exciting free agency period in WNBA history and one that I think will change the future of the league. So as somebody that admittedly probably doesn't watch the WNBA as much as I should, because one thing the NBA fans, media complain about is the idea that 
free agency, while it has increased offseason interest in the league and, you know, there's like this long running drama, but like the constant shuffling of stars and teams is in some ways not good because it diminishes the hopes for other teams and so on and so forth. It makes other teams instantly competitive and others not so much. Do you worry at all about that or, or no? I mean, one benefit the WNBA has right now is there are only 12 teams, right? So there's such a concentration of talent. It really needs to expand. So there are so many good players. It's different when you have your elite players spread out over 30 teams. If a couple of them congregate, you're going to have some teams without any superstars at all. Whereas that's harder, more difficult to happen in the WNBA because there's such elite talent. And yeah, I mean, I think... There's always a give or take with these things, right? I think there's, of course, there's some teams who love, you know, Phoenix is devastated that Dwana Bonner isn't there anymore. Dallas fans would have loved to see another season of Skylar Dickens-Smith, you know. Washington Mystics fans are sad that Chrissy Tolliver is gone. That's a part of it. But when you look at the new configurations of these teams, you have what is essentially a super team now with the Phoenix Mercury with Brittany Griner, Diana Taurasi, Skylar Diggins-Smith. That could be your starting three on the Olympic team. I'm not saying it will be, but it very well could be. You have Dewana Bonner joining... John Quell Jones in Connecticut for which is an instant improvement for a team that made it to game five of the WNBA finals last year. So I think seeing this player movement is by far a net positive for the league, especially when you consider the WNBA season is only five, six months long, kind of depending on how it goes. We there's been a big need to get more talk about the league during the offseason. And this is a huge way to do it. Yeah. And you didn't even mention like the Sparks have Candace Parker, Neka Gumake, Chelsea Gray, and Tolliver. <laughs> now the Las Vegas Aces have Liz Cambage, Asia Wilson, Angel McCautry. Uh, the Storm have Sue Bird, Brianna Stewart, Jewel yeah. Lloyd. I mean, the, there aren't that many teams and there are a lot of very good players. And so kind of super teams are going to happen organically. And now with all of this movement, it's just going to lead to hyper-concentration of talent, but probably on more teams that are in the NBA. And it's also, I think, as a consequence, just like in the NBA, when they raised the cap by a huge amount in a single year and decided not to smooth it out. Like, this was probably the year where all of the movement is going to happen. And then in years to follow, there's probably going to be less flexibility for teams to make deals. And it's so interesting because it's setting the market as we go because the WNBA has never had this, right? Where a bunch of players can earn over $100,000. You know, it used to be just for the select few. So we're already seeing kind of some head scratching contracts where you're going the Phoenix Mercury. I thought they were trying to get Tina Charles too. There are rumors that they were trying to get Tina Charles and then they give Bria Hartley a guard from the New York Liberty, who's, you know, a talented, I think of her as kind of a six woman type player, but she's now got a contract for like a hundred $87,000. And I thought to myself, gosh, it feels refreshing to feel that there's like a bad contract. <laughs> like that there's enough money going around that like you feel like some teams are making some mistakes with their cap money like that. And look, this is nothing against Bria Hartley, but you know, she's not one of the elite players in the league. So I think you're going to see some GMs make some mistakes, which is something we've definitely seen in the NBA whenever there's been a cap spike. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's one thing about 
by organization. Like, there's going to be bad organizations no matter what. Like, right. it'll become, they'll come more into focus yeah. now. One thing that you meant, you said Diana Taurasi, and I was shocked to find out that Diana Taurasi is only going to be 38 this year. Because yeah. I assumed that Diana Taurasi was like 45 years old or something like that. <laughs> At what point can the Mercury stop counting on her? Because in the NBA, like, you know, again, in basketball, at some point you'd say, oh, well, you have to acquiesce to age, right? But with Diana Taurasi, it's like, oh, she's still going to be a star in her like 20th year. It's, it's wild. Although she is, she's, she's missed pretty much all but a couple games of last season with a back surgery that ended up kind of moving into a hamstring thing because that's how these things work. You right. are overcompensating. She hasn't played for USA Basketball yet. She's been with a team but hasn't been on the court. She's very motivated to get herself healthy. She wants to be on this Olympic team and she wants to play another season with the Mercury. But her body is definitely breaking down. Down. The real outlier here is Sue Bird, who is two mm. years older than Diana Taurasi and looking as good as ever. <laughs> Which doesn't make any sense because I, I guess this is, you know, you get as you get older, you lose a sense of like how old people are and what yeah. years they are. I had no idea that Sue Bird was two years older than Diana Taurasi. Yep. I thought, they, man. She helped recruit Diana Taurasi to UConn. Isn't that wild? See, I remember vividly <laughs> watching Sue Bird in the Final Four. Mm-hmm. And I just assumed that she, I, like, I, this is the way the UConn lineage goes. Rebecca Lobo, to me at least, Rebecca yeah. Lobo, then somewhere in there, Diana Taurasi, then Sue Bird. Like, it didn't, there was no way in which I, you could not have told me any, in any way that Sue Bird, I don't know, I don't know why, maybe Sue Bird is fairly young. I've seen her up close and you would never, ever think that she was close to 40. <laughs> right. well, it's ridiculous. Right. There are only 144 roster spots in the yeah. WNBA. And, and so you have these players kind of hanging around and you have women's college basketball is only getting better so every much year. Better. There's yeah. so yeah. much of a squeeze and these rosters just keep getting more talented. But the really interesting thing about this CBA, Lindsay, is that it really puts the squeeze from what I've read on these middle tier of players that it's better for the stars, but for the players that are filling out these rosters, it's not necessarily the greatest deal. Yeah. And I think that what we're going to see, unfortunately, is so there's, yeah, there's only 144 roster spots. And unfortunately, I think with this cap, there's going to be a lot of teams just carrying 11 players this year because that's the minimum. So there's going to be even fewer, but for salary cap reasons. That's the kind of thing that a players union is going to be pissed about. I mean, maybe they anticipated it, but I can just imagine in any sport, this the idea that teams wouldn't be carrying the max number of players is is not going to make the uh, union happy. It's not ideal. And it's uh, for me, that was the one weak spot in their CBA. I'd hope that they would at least expand the roster to 13 or 14 if there wasn't going to be expansion because there had been a time when roster sizes were 14. And so I thought that we might be getting back to that, to getting even more players in the mix. And now it seems that there's going to be a backward step, but also there's give and takes another way. And hopefully over the next couple of years, as this particular business model gets sustained, there can be actual expansion in the league, which then will take care of losing some of these spots. But I agree, it's going to be very interesting to see how this impacts the middle of the road players so far. Everyone is benefiting and all these free agent signings, because a lot of them are bigger names, right, are getting deals even for the lower tiered ones that are up north of 100,000, which is, you know, what only the Diana Taurasi's were getting before. But 
But yeah, it's a whole new world and there are going to be some losers. There's some losers in every single negotiation like this. I mean, there are some rosters that they already have 11 or 12 players. And I'm just like, how are they even going to sign their first round draft pick this year? Like there's just no space. I think about Sabrina Yasko. She is probably clearly the best player in college women's basketball. Point guard for the University of Oregon. Would have been the first pick in the WNBA draft. Is that fair to say, Lindsay? Would have been if if she come out right this year, but passed on the draft and went back to play college in Oregon. And now Oregon is one of the best teams in the country. They beat the U.S. women's national team in an exhibition earlier (laughs) this year, in large part because of her. And I just wonder, let's say that that CBA is done, you know, at this time last year. That doesn't affect Sabrina's decision to go back to school, you think? I don't think as much because I think rookie contracts are still pretty low. You know, I mean, Mm -hmm. the rookie contracts have definitely increased, but you're not making the $200,000 if you're a rookie. Brianna Stewart actually still isn't eligible for the max. (laughs) In her fifth year, like she's signed right now, she just re-signed her contract for like 185, which is, of course, way better, but she doesn't have the years under her belt. I don't know what exactly it is yet to be eligible for the max. So I don't think that would have necessarily changed Sabrina's calculation. And of course, the big thing for her was that they did win the national championship and she knew that if she came back that Oregon had a good chance to win the national championship. Although South Carolina has actually been the best team this year. So, uh, you know, Dawn Staley might have something to say about that, but that was the big reason. So I don't think that would have changed her calculation overall, but I think in general, it might impact some players down the line. And we're already starting to see more players come out early because remember, it's not just the money that they can earn in the WNBA. It's the money they can earn overseas as well. That adds up to be a good amount. And Let's face it, what Sabrina can make, will will make, I'm sure, from Nike will far surpass her WNBA contract. Yeah, she's fascinating figure. Rachel Bachman had a good piece about her in the Wall Street Journal that noted that Oregon tickets for a game against Oregon State were selling secondary market for almost $500. The best seats that she's really? increased attendance there yeah. by a huge amount. But I'm curious for your thoughts, Lindsay, about the fact that a major reason for her mainstream fame is that she's been getting a lot of attention from male players and male commentators. She has this very well-known, had this very well-known affiliation with Kobe Bryant. She's been praised on social media by a huge number of NBA stars, you know, LeBron James, Steph Curry, John Morant. What do you think it is about her that resonates so much with NBA players? And and how do you feel about the fact that a lot large part of her fame is because of getting this kind of affirmation from men? I don't actually think that that's I think she had the stats before that came. Right. So that might be a reason that some people on the sides are paying more attention, but she passed the triple-double mark. So she has more triple-doubles than any player, male or female, in college basketball after her junior year. (laughs) So she, I mean, she is just shattering records in a way that we haven't seen any college basketball player do. And I think that the way 
she's been able to take over the game has a lot to do with that. She plays with a style and attitude that kind of transcends the sport and transcends her, even her amazing numbers. She does. And I think a lot of it, look, she's in Oregon. And I think the closeness to Nike has also made her kind of more accessible to these all these superstars coming in and out of Nike headquarters and the relationship Oregon has with Nike. But yeah, I mean, I'm not going to say she's been in the past year on the cover of the Washington Post sports section, on the cover of the New York Times sports section, on the cover of the Wall Street Journal sports section, and the cover of the LA Times sports section. You Whoa. don't see, like, that is huge exposure. Right, but and think about what it took for that to happen, right. though, right? Because it would, like, Zion, it was great, but he didn't have the career resume that Sabrina had. But to go back to Josh's point real quick, you know what else? I, I, I do think that NBA players see something in her attitude. It's just like, she visibly talks shit. Oh, she Which is, is not something... Yeah, right. Which And I know that that happens at all levels of basketball at any point. But like with her, it's like visceral. It's mm-hmm. like she's... <laughs> You can, you can, she's like, she's spitting anger the whole time she's playing. And I think that's something people like really relate to. There's a video of her playing, uh, I think it was against Justin Herbert, the Oregon quarterback and like his brothers. And she like stuffs a guy and shoves him, uh, (laughs) went, went viral. It's It's great. And there was a small thing that really stood out to me in that Rachel Bachman piece in the journal and mentioned that UNESCO might play in the Olympics and three on three basketball. Mm -hmm. And for whatever reason, the Olympics has not given women's basketball the kind of bump historically that athletes in other sports Mm -hmm. have gotten. I don't think it's given the WNBA much of a bump. I don't think it's made the best players bigger stars. But for some reason, I feel like Sabrina Ionescu in three-on-three basketball for the first time ever in the Olympics, I feel like that could be really huge for her and for the sport. Yeah, I think it could be really great. I mean, I think seeing her, I I can't wait to see her compete with the national team and try and make that roster. And I think she's got already has a really great case for it. But I actually am curious to see what this Olympics overall does for the WNBA because there's a lot more synergy right now between USA Basketball and the WNBA. Uh, Diana Taurasi and Sue Bird basically single-handedly or double-handedly, I guess, between themselves, created this year-long year national team program that has brought the national team to around to all of these colleges. And I'm actually really excited to see what the Olympics can do now that it seems that uh, Kathy Engelbert, the commissioner of the WNBA, and Team USA Basketball seem like they actually want to capitalize on some of that momentum that could be created. And I, I hope that that's the case no matter who is making the roster. Yeah, and it's really interesting because, and you guys catch me if you disagree here, but the U.S. Olympic team has never had a better or more dominant program than its women's basketball team. Yeah. yeah. Right? Like, I mean, I can't think of another team or program like that. Even, I mean, we call the men's team the dream team, but they've lost. Yeah. You know, <laughs> you know what I mean? I would be interested to see, like, yes, if Sabrina does play a role and creating this better synergy with the WNBA and women's basketball abroad. But like, we need to ask the question is why hasn't that already happened? Like we, we rally around the women's soccer team in a way that, you know, it's great. We should do that. We rally around all these other soccer teams, but the women's basketball team, for whatever reason, as good as it's been, as dominant as it's been, 
has never gotten that kind of support. It's never translated into anything else beyond that. And I think you can't discount the role that racism and homophobia mm-hmm. have played in that. And um, also just, I think there's been a lot of taking it for granted. You know, there's, there's taking that greatness for granted. There have been years where soccer team hasn't won, right? But you really do assume that every time the women's team takes the court that they're going to win. And there will be overwhelming favorites at the Olympics this year. They're, they're probably their third team would be favorites at the Olympics this year. But international basketball is improving at a very, very fast rate. There are WNBA players all throughout the teams in Tokyo. And they just almost got beat by Nigeria in a warm-up tournament. A couple of weeks ago, barely eked out a win over Nigeria. So it's going to be fun. And I hope that this is a changing of the guard because you're totally right, Joel. It has gotten completely lost in the shadows. And while the soccer team has been hailed as these heroes, we've really taken the greatness of the basketball team. And hopefully this will be, you know, we'll get one final Olympics with Sue Bird and Diana Taurasi. And like, let's not take this for granted. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I wanted to let you know that in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we're going to catch up on the U.S. women's national soccer team's equal pay suit and look at why the men's team expressed solidarity with their female counterparts. If you want to hear that and you're not a Slate Plus member, you can sign up for Slate Plus. It's just $35 for the first year. And you can sign up at slate.com slash hangup plus. All right. So first of all, please appreciate that Josh is in the middle of putting together the four season of the Slow Burn podcast. He's also working on this podcast that you listen to right now. And yet he found time to binge on the six part cheer series for <laughs> Netflix. Like that alone doesn't tell you how addictive the show is, but it gives you a pretty good idea. The series takes place at Navarro Junior College in Texas, a little south of Dallas, where longtime coach Monica Aldana has built this unlikely cheerleading powerhouse. Navarro has won 14 of the last 19 National Junior College Championships and five of the last eight Grand National Championships, which was awarded to the uh, overall top scoring squad. So if you remember the Last Chance U series, then you'll get the appeal of cheer. Last Chance U covered these junior college programs in towns in Mississippi and Kansas, where these talented but troubled athletes come in search of another way to big-time football. Cheer doesn't work quite like that. And it's not exactly clear where the post-Navarro destination is, or even if the future is brighter for the kids who come through Coach Aldana's program. But while they're there, in Texas of all places, they're as much heroes as the football players, if not more so. You get to watch them perfect their craft in all six episodes, sometimes excruciatingly so. Uh, and, And I mean that literally and figuratively. There's a seemingly endless tally of broken bones, cracked ribs, and concussed heads. And in fact, We've got a clip from Morgan. Uh, she's a member of the Navarro cheer team who's sort of a newbie as far as competitive cheerleading goes. And we can cue it up right here. It's crazy what we do if you think about it. Like, whoever thought of taking two people in a back spot and chucking someone into the air and see how many times they can spin, how many times they can flip, that person is psychotic. But yeah, I'm the crazy person because I'm the one that does it. And it does seem crazy. You hear, you, you can really hear the bones cracking and ankles breaking and all this stuff 
throughout the series. You, we sit in practice probably about a third of the time that the documentary goes. And it's all in service of this one perfect moment that doesn't quite come together. And I don't want to spoil it for people who haven't seen it, but it's not even pretty at the end. So anyway, Josh, you finally watched over the weekend. What was your big takeaway from Cheer? Well, congratulations, first of all, on getting me to watch it. You've been uh, honest to talk about Cheer for a while, and I was kind of you know, putting it off, like, yeah, I'll get to this eventually. And then I watched the first episode, and then I watched all six in very uh, rapid succession (laughs) after. It's just before we get into all of the like really fascinating um, conversations we can have about the show, it's just an unbelievably well-made piece of television uh, docuseries. You know, you heard in that clip the sounds of that 100-pound cheerleader Morgan getting tossed in there and caught, like, and the way that they have that mic you can really kind of hear and feel viscerally the pain every time one of those moves gets made. And so it's just incredibly well shot. Um, The sound is great. And the way that they integrate the competition with the backstories of the athletes and going back to their hometowns and hearing about their stories, I don't know if I've ever seen a work of kind of reality television or docu-series like this that is so transfixing. Um, I haven't actually seen Last Chance You. That is also on my list. So I don't know if Last Chance You is this good, but Lindsay, I just could not stop watching this series. I too just binged it basically over the weekend after my podcast co-host had been begging me to watch it so we can talk about it. (laughs) So very similar. Yeah, it was... All of the getting to know these people within the context of doing this. Like, I've never been a big athlete, shocker. Uh, you know, I've been just a sports fan, one of the sideline people. Most sports, though, while they amaze me, they don't feel like they're in another universe. <laughs> like watching mm. this and watching the things that these these athletes are doing just feels like they are completely different human beings than than I am. But I think what I really appreciated about this docu-series is you think of cheerleading and you think of kind of the glitz and the glamour, maybe the cattiness, maybe the, you know, the polish and the shine, or is this really was all about kind of the humanity of it, the athleticism of it. And I mean, this is this powerhouse program that practices in this bare bones gymnasium in the middle of nowhere. Well, Navarro is both a juggernaut and an underdog, which I think makes it, Joel, the perfect subject for a series like this. And they have this one rival, Trinity Valley, which is kind of glimpsed very occasionally. And they have this coach, Vontae Johnson, who's like the opposite kind of of Coach Monica. And it made me wonder, like, what would the docuseries about Trinity Valley have have been? Because Navarro is portrayed, and I think correct, like these kids come from really difficult backgrounds. They do have to struggle. And yet Navarro wins all the time, and Trinity Valley doesn't. I wonder if you could have made such a compelling series about the rival school, or if it had to be Navarro. I think it helps a lot because that way you get to Daytona at the end where the, the final championship is, the, the final championship competition is, and you get this payoff. You get to see this team defending or not defending its title, and that feels a little bit different because that's the, that's the spine of this story. 
how is Navarro going to maintain this excellence? You know, and you see how they how they get to be great, and you get to see well, will it all pay off at the end? I don't know that we would have gotten that at Trinity Valley, but the one thing that I thought about was, my God. They don't have a lot of resources there. And I thought about that most when the cheerleaders got hurt over and over again. And they'll be like, oh, well, you know, maybe you should ice that up or, you know, you should go see the doctor or whatever. And like at any other major program in any other major sport, there'd be so much more attention paid to the injuries that were compiled during the course of this competition. And that just didn't happen there. And it made me actually, I mean, in some ways I was, it was inspiring. I was like, man, they're soldiering on in spite of all these limitations. But I also wondered what it would have looked like if it had happened at the University of Texas, if they had all these sort of resources. And I wondered, I wonder, I like, why does the University of Texas do this? Because it's not until the end that you realize that they're dominating amongst all these other programs that are similarly limited. It's not like, community colleges or junior colleges are well-funded in any way. And sometimes they score high enough where they beat, and often they score high enough for these other programs, right? And they're competing at that level. But fundamentally, their primary competition are these other poorly funded schools in far out places. And that just made me wonder, what would that look like at Texas A&M? What would that look like at SME? One for me, a lot of that brought up the fact that this is cheerleading is not like an NCAA sanctioned sport, you know, and I think so much sexism goes into that and like the way we viewed cheerleading throughout the year. But also one of the things I did not see coming and would have honestly loved to hear a lot more about was the final episode. You hear about this conglomerate corporation varsity that kind of has their stranglehold over the sport. And I've done a little bit of research about how varsity has kind of fought to keep it from being an NCAA sport, right? So that varsity gets to keep hold of this sport and keep making the profits and keep like running this world of competitive cheerleading. And now that I'm ever, ever in favor of, you know, NCAA kind of taking control, but there are sort of some regulations and some level of minimal oversight when you are an NCAA sport that it made me wish kind of wonder if this would be, they would be better off to have. I don't know what you think, Joel. No, listen, actually I was going to ask, because I was wondering how many times per day, how many hours per day per week do they practice? It seems like that's something they do all the time, right? No limitations. Yeah, no limitations. And they don't, like there's one trainer for their whole school. So basically the way it worked out, like in one of the early scenes, the one, you know, one athletic trainer was all the way working with another team all the way across. And then there's a serious injury and they had to like drop everything and come all the way over. Whereas, you know, you're getting much more oversight and there are certain I mean, we know they're not always followed, but there are concussion, some, you know, semblances of concussion protocols and things like that. And the only way I felt like it not being NCAA sport really benefited was the fact that I feel like these players were able to create these social media followings and profit mm. off of them, which I thought was a really interesting thing. There was one of the cheerleaders, Gabby, I think her name was, who had like, you know, she has almost a million followers on Instagram and was really building a brand. And of course- Up to she, one and a half million. Now oh, the cheer is whoa, out. Oh, I bet. Yeah. yeah. And of course, if she was, I kept thinking if she was an NCAA athlete, of course, that wouldn't be allowed. And I found that to be interesting. That's the first thing I wrote in my notes is cheer shows what could happen if the NCAA allowed athletes to market themselves. That, yeah. Right. And that is a benefit that these athletes have that with this not being an NCAA sport, they can do sponsored content on yeah. their social media um, and they can make money from, you know, if cheer uh, 
was about uh, a football team. The all of the people that are in cheer now are incredibly famous. You've, if if you get into uh, YouTube and like look at um, all the stuff that these guys have done, like Jerry is on the red carpet for Ellen DeGeneres. Like they're all doing like every conceivable marketing opportunity, and it's yeah. and it's great for them. And I'm sure that they're being able to profit off of their names and likenesses, which they would not be able to do as um, NCA athletes. But the varsity brands thing is so insane. Matt Stoller had a good post to, about it in his newsletter about monopolies. It's like, not only does varsity do these competitions, they also sell all of the apparel. Stoller pointed out that they had one competition where they actually gave teams more points if they did stunts with varsity brands, <gasps> like products. What? And these, um, these competitions are marketing essentially vehicles for varsity cheerleading outfits, cheerleading products. It's like this totally like vertically integrated monopoly. And uh, it's it's nuts. It's truly nuts. You you couldn't watch it on ESPN or anything. You have to right. like buy their streaming platform to even yeah. be able to watch this. And uh, that was just that was really stunning. And so part of this was that the camera crew, the Netflix camera crew, couldn't bring their uh, crew completely into Daytona to film. They kind of were relying on like iPhone footage because of this varsity monopoly. Yeah. Another thing that I thought about with cheer in regards to the people that make up the team is how easy it would be for these kids to be exploited. I, first of all, I didn't get the sense that many of them went to school or had much of an academic record before they got to school. Which in some ways gives them an advantage in junior colleges because they have a much more liberal uh, entrance policy than uh, than than another bigger NCAA affiliated school, right? So they can bring in people that it wasn't clear that they did. Gabby say that she'd not been to school basically. She was homeschooled. She was homeschooled a long time. It wasn't clear that there was a lot of academic grounding and a lot of in, in, in for a lot of these players or that they spend a lot of time in class. It was only at the end when you hear that Jerry gets this scholarship to the university, academic scholarship to the University of Louisville. I was like, oh, wow, I wonder how you found time to go to class and what kind of classes you took. But there was never any sense that academics played any role in sort of in, in this education, which maybe is fine. But that was such a huge part of Last Chance U. Right. I mean, I didn't watch the most recent season of Last Chance U, but I mean, in the first season, like one of the main characters was the academic like yeah. advisor, like with these play, like she was like uh, almost a star of the series. And so right. it was weird, like not having that part of it into it. Um, but of course, all of those players are trying to go on to academically be able to qualify for these bigger schools, whereas I was just brought up time and time again, they are these, you know, 19, 20 year olds at the pinnacle of their like, there's nowhere to go for he from here as far as like competitive cheerleading. Right. That's it for them, which is weird. You just again, and it comes back to the sexism of it, because what is the LSU? have a cheerleading program where you can go into and get that scholarship and, you know, you, you can go that Juco route and then do that. You know? Let's talk about Monica Aldama, the coach. She's compared in cheer to Nick Saban and Bill Belichick. She's struck me as kind of more like Coach Taylor from the Friday Night Lights universe. She clearly cares a lot about the men and women on her team. They all talk about her as the queen in an admiring term. She's the greatest cheerleading coach that that there is in terms of resume 
And yet it seems like she's putting her athletes in danger a lot of the time. Gia Tolentino in a piece for The New Yorker wrote, Throughout the season, Aldama uses Morgan's attachment to her in a way that pushes Morgan into physical danger. Her ribs come to the brink of fracturing, though she tries to conceal it, and also provides Morgan with a new confidence and a novel sense that she is needed and seen. Yeah. At times, it's a very toxic relationship. And at other times, it seems like a very rewarding relationship for these athletes. But I think ultimately, that's kind of an uncomfortable truth at the root of a lot of toxic relationships is that it's not all bad, right? That the manipulation is part of that. And I do think seeing her flippant nature towards injuries for these kids was jarring. And I can't overlook it, nor do I think it should be overlooked. At the same time, she was definitely giving a lot of these kids, young adults, like a support and a love and an attention that they had never received before. Joel, how much of what you saw from Monica do you feel like is just endemic to high-level competitive college athletics versus being unique to this particular environment? It just reminded me of every, pretty much every coach that you might come across at that level or any level, right? Because there is this pretense that the coaches care about you and they want the best for you. And there's always a sense that they're going to be parental figures in your life for the rest of your life. And that they just want the best for you and the teaching you sacrifice and uh, commitment and determination and all these other values that we supposedly imbue our sports with. But in the end, especially if you go to the end of this documentary, what was it all for? Because we get to the end of the documentary and we see that a lot of for a lot of these cheerleaders, there doesn't appear to be like some sort of defined path. Like there's not a necessarily a way forward. We get Morgan, who's just kind of hanging out on campus when it's all over. Jerry was able to, you know, use his academics to get it somewhere else. But Ladarius, mm-hmm. I mean, he found a gym that he's working at. But I mean, I think the argument is that she at least claims I've won enough. I don't need more trophies. I just do this for the kids and I want to give them discipline and put them on the right path. Yeah. I mean, I guess we need to know a little bit more about what that path looks like after this. And a big thing is, I think it's coming back for a second season and a lot of these people are coming back. Say what? I think Cheer is coming back for for another season. Yeah. But who are your sources on that, Lindsay? (laughs) Are you you making an announcement? Yeah, I haven't heard that. That's amazing. Wow. I haven't seen that. I haven't seen that anywhere. You haven't? No. Rumor has it. I would say it's coming back for a second season. Oh. Rumor has it Jerry's going to still be involved. And well, Jerry's I, back at Navarro now. Yeah, because Jerry's definitely back in Navarro. He did he not didn't... end up taking that, that scholarship. What? Joel's okay. face is I'm amazing good. right now. He went, um, to, oh my God. he went to Louisville, just... but then he left. Yeah. And I just want to make sure that these contracts uh, for this second season are <laughs> fair to these cheerleaders. <laughs> oh, my God. Jerry didn't go to Louisville? He went. He went. He just didn't stay. He thought Navarro was the best place for him. But probably just... because of said second season of the show. Yeah. I think it probably had something to do with it. I don't it. know. Oh, man. All right. Hold yeah, Lindsay yeah. to that if there's not a second season. Oh, God, I've been to Corsicana, Texas before, and I, I can't imagine that you need to spend more than a year, a year and a half there if you don't have to. All right. Quick lightning round for me. I mentioned earlier the kind of backstories that you hear about all of the cheerleaders and just the different kinds of brokenness that the show depicts like Gabby's relationship with her parents who are just incredibly overbearing and I think are seen as villains by a lot of people who watch the show. Um, Jerry and what he overcomes in in his life with his mom and and getting cancer. 
Morgan being abandoned by her family, Ladarius getting bullied and abused, just the amount of pain and kind of different types of emotional pain that all of these people went through is harrowing. And I think also one of the things that I really, I don't know if admired is the the right word, but you see the kind of like depictions of, t- of people that you don't necessarily see in popular media. Mm-hmm. And one of I'm transitioning a little bit here, but like gay black male athlete is like not a category. Like we've obviously Michael Sam, Jason Collins, but um, just like the men on this this team are just really fascinating figures and not ones that you necessarily see in like kind of reality television docu-series um, environment all that often. There were a lot of things to in to enjoy about this series amidst all this brokenness amidst all this possible exploitation. But the one thing that I kept coming back to is how much they all supported each other, how much they made community for each other. And maybe that's, you know, the cameras are there and in some ways they're putting on a good show, but it really did seem that those guys, those girls really did care about each other and took care of each other, even as they were competing amongst themselves for spots on the cheerleading team. But it just seemed, you know, there were all these moments where Jerry and Ladarius are in their room and they're talking to each other. And it's like very brotherly or, or even Lexi, like Lexi's just hanging out there. Lexi's somebody that we didn't bring up um, who, you know, if you get to the end of the documentary, there's not a lot of, reason to feel excited about you know her immediate future she's back but in navarro too joel by the way she's back in navarro too <laughs> oh man wow you're breaking news okay what do you do did you follow all their instagram accounts after uh i'm not or? gonna answer that question <laughs> okay there was some there was some googling okay all right yeah yeah oh that's great but you that's have great. some you have something that to look forward to after we finish recording the podcast okay. joel yeah, I'm, I'm excited. Get into that. I think like it seems like what you're getting at is there was this intense athletic environment without a lot of toxic masculinity, which is just like so rare. And especially like coming from the last chance you kind of se- like type series, like it was just not that there weren't components of that as far as the ruthless competitiveness, the, you know, manipulation. I mean, th- there were some unhealthy aspects to this but seeing it be predominantly women and gay men as the stars of this like brutal intense athletic competition made it feel different and was putting them in a different light and showing us different sides to people than we're used to seeing represented in our media all right let us end it there and it is now time for after balls And after just ending it there, I'm going to restart it again because I want to keep talking about cheer for just another 15 seconds. So did you guys notice on apparel, just kind of around in the background of the show, there's this acronym F-I-O-F-M-U? No. It's just kind of around there, little Easter egg if you look for it. Very observant. They never talk about it. And I found this article on the website Decider which found a a tweet from a Navarro cheerleader named Kayla Culver that says, F-I-O-F-M-U is a coded message motto that you learn and earn throughout the year while on the team, 
learning the meaning is entirely special and is only known by Navarro cheerleaders and Navarro cheer alumni. So if we want to know what FIOFMU means, then we need to go to Navarro. So I'm, I'm up for it. Actually, they did highlight a deleted urban dictionary entry that suggests that what the definition is. So this may or may not be true, but it perhaps stands for fight it out, fuck them up. Huh. That sounds fine. I like right. that. That's great. Yeah. All right. So F-I-O-F-M-U, Joel, what do you got for us? So yeah, my F-I-O-F-M-U <laughs> is, is the Knuckleheads podcast. And so if you're an NBA fan, you probably settled in this weekend to watch one of the best all-star weekends in recent memory. The three-point and dunk contests were each decided by a single point. Aaron Gordon jumped over seven-foot-five taco fall and lost. Okay, uh, the game on Sunday night was one of the most in- competitive in the game's history, with guys Kyle Lowry taking charges in the final minutes. And it'd be easy enough to get lost in the second half of the NBA season to come. There's a lot to look forward to. Will Bron and the Lakers win one for Kobe? Will Kawhi and Paul George keep them from even winning Los Angeles? Is this Giannis's year in Milwaukee? And so on and so forth. But the knuckleheads is for those of us who want to look backward a little bit. And it's co-hosted by the Los Angeles Clippers first round picks in 2000. So sorry, Marco Yurick, you didn't make the cut. I guess maybe he's a, he comes in sometimes. But it's going to be starting its third season today with an interview with Shaquille O'Neal. So the timing here is just perfect, right? Um, and the podcast isn't so much about these star-studded guests, the Shaqs, the Kobe's, the Dwayne Wade's, the Kevin Durant's, as it is about the working class of the NBA. Mm. It starts at the top where the co-host Darius Miles and Quentin Richardson each begin an episode with a question. And it's, who was the first person in the NBA to bust your ass? And the responses opened this portal back to a time when guys like Nick Van Exel, Baron Davis, and Carlos Boozer were important parts of the NBA landscape. That time of the NBA, by the way, is so much more delightful in our memories than it was in real time. But you'll hear about how much the players respected Isaiah Thomas as a coach, um, how they first met at these various AAU tournaments around the country, and how Vashawn Leonard was apparently the most unstoppable player that <laughs> we, we don't remember uh, for whatever reason. But uh, nobody can stop Vashawn Leonard, according to at least four players that have appeared on the Knuckleheads podcast. So anyway, you know, Darius and Quentin have this knack for getting players to open up in ways that they usually don't in the mainstream media. And that's probably because they have these relationships with everyone. Um, and in fact, it leads to this great quote because Darius and Quentin were famous for a time for putting both their fists on their forehead after they dunked or made a big play. And that's how they ended up becoming called knuckleheads. And that sort of gave them a modicum of fame so much so that they appeared in the Van Wilder movie series. And so it leads to this great scene. It was great. This great clip in the podcast where uh, Darius says that Van Wilder love hit different. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> So so it's just great. So in a time of renewed interest in our working class, Super Tuesday, uh, Knuckleheads is the window we need into the heartland of the NBA. I couldn't recommend it more. That sounds amazing. And thank you for your appreciation of the working man. It's a sentiment that we could all all, uh, use more. Lindsay, what is your F-I-O-F-M-U? Okay, well, I can't, already have forgotten that acronym, so uh, I'm just going <laughs> to dive right into it. <laughs> uh, we, we talked about women's basketball, and I thought I would dig back to one of my favorite 
Power plays, archival finds. I like to go back in the archives for my newsletters. Talk a little bit of it about the first dominant force in women's basketball history and college women's basketball history, uh, Immaculata, a small school in Pennsylvania that had about 500 people attending, all women. Um, they won the first three national championships. This was when it was the AIAW Women's Basketball Tournament, the Association for Intercollegiate Athletics for Women. Um, but they were part of some big moments in women's basketball history. The first being when they defeated Maryland 80 to 48 on January 26, 1975, in College Park. That was the very first televised women's basketball game. Wow. And then a, just about a month later, they became the first women's basketball team to play in Madison Square Garden. And they played against Queens College. And I thought I would read some excerpts from the Daily News article um, setting up this game, because as you if you're familiar with daily news articles, then this won't be surprised. Uh, it says uh, at 1.30 this afternoon, a bunch of long-haired basketball players will step onto the garden court and into history. For the first time in a major sports arena, the players will be wearing mascara. Whoa. <laughs> uh, it goes on to describe that there are two major differences between the UCLA program, y'all, um, run by John Wooden at the time and, you know, the Immaculata, which whose coach was Kathy Rush, who's making, I think, $450 a year at the time. So the first major difference that they harp on is the fact that she will allow both genders into the locker room five minutes after the game. So it was really funny reading back on this coverage because there's been all this uh, stuff about can women be in the men's locker room? But at the time, they were there was all this pearl clutching. Will the men go into the women's locker room because all the reporters <laughs> are male? So she did left, let them in and she said it would be sexist if I didn't. To close out this Daily News preview, he said, the Mighty Max, which was the name for Immaculata, play a swarming eyelash to eyelash, smear the lipstick pressing defense, and a run and shoot offense led by their slick playmaking guard, Marianne Crawford. And Marianne Crawford is the one and only Marianne Stanley, women's basketball legend, who is the coach of the head coach of the Indiana Fever this year. Awesome. So oh, cool, full story. There is a great um, comic, of course, to go with it that's in the locker room. So, of course, and um, it was actually a great game, unlike the first televised game, which was a blowout. Um, they beat Queen 65 to 61 in what everybody said was one of the best basketball games ever played up until that time. Wow, that's amazing. And 12,000 people were there. All right, so where exactly is Immaculata? Well, I think it's about uh, 30 miles west of Philly. Okay. Not far from Valley Forge Historical Park, if you want to make like a, a road trip and yeah. see the sights. I mean, look, this is sports history. Before the big programs had started investing in women's sports, it was the small women's colleges that were really where women's sports were being made. And the coach, I love, said that she didn't have spending time recruiting she did have to spend time on the phones reporting her results to newspapers after the games. <laughs> so 
I do not have an FIOFMU. I was just spending too much time looking at the Instagram accounts for all of the cheerleaders, as one does after watching cheer. But I do want to say that the archival stuff that you have in PowerPlays is amazing and infuriating, but also entertaining <laughs> at times. The one that was the most recent was about a suggestion that women needed to stop playing soccer because um, of potential oh. health issues by getting hit by the ball. Oh, yeah. Like it's going to yeah. ruin both your ovaries. The pelvis isn't strong enough for women to play. And also, um, yeah, it, it could, the ball could hit the breasts, which would damage any ability to be a woman, really, I think was the, <laughs> was overall. Um, so this was what, what's wild to me about this stuff is I consider myself fairly, you know, fairly young. And I was born in 86. And I think the article from that archive, which was from a Russian news service, but it was just 10 years before I was born. that <laughs> People wow. were saying yeah. this, you know, like we're not talking about the, the, you know, the 1920s. Like this is all within the lifetimes, you know, that that um, they were saying this these type of sports are too dangerous for women and it's too threatening for men, which is what it ultimately came I mean, down the, to. The women uh, who who created the kind of soccer boom in the U.S., like they were growing up while articles like that were being written. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like it was it, that was all part of it. There are women in our lifetime that grew up playing basketball when it wasn't even full court. Right. right? Six, yeah. yeah. Muffet McGraw. I mean, legendary coach. Like when she learned basketball, it was six on, you know, six on six. And she was she was the rover. All right. All the more reason to subscribe yeah, to, to, Power, <laughs> to PowerPlays. That is our show for today. Our producer is Melissa Kaplan to listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out. Go to slate.com slash hangup and you can email us at hangup at slate.com. If you're still here, I'm guessing you might want even more hang up and listen. In our bonus segment this week, we talked about the U.S. women's soccer team's equal pay suit and the men's team's recent expression of solidarity. There are some disputes over what U.S. soccer is and what U.S. soccer should be. You know, there's a lot of drama because the money-making entities are essentially the two national teams, right? But the mandate of U.S. soccer is not just to run these two national teams. It's to grow the game of soccer at the grassroots level. To hear that conversation, join Slate Plus. It's just $35 for the first year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangup plus. For Joel Anderson and Lindsey Gibbs, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.